Drafting Archetypes is sponsored by Grey Viking Games. Grey Viking Games is the best place to get MTGA arena codes. From booster packs to awesome cosmetics, check them out at greyvikinggames.com and use our code DRAFT for 10% off. Hi everyone, this is Sam Black with another edition of Drafting Archetypes. Today we will be talking about red-green in Kaldheim, but before we get to that, I want to take a quick moment to thank my new patrons over at patreon.com. So thank you to Matt, Jared, and Sunspot, and if anyone else is interested in uh, joining the patron and supporting the podcast on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes, where we offer a variety of uh, perks like uh, access to the notes that I compile before each show to f- sort through what I'm going to talk about, as well as the ability to vote on future episodes and see my draft logs and things like that. So with that out of the way, let's get to the topic for t- today, which is drafting red green. And I'm going to approach this one a little bit differently. I usually start by talking about the cards that are likely to put you into an archetype. And with red-green, looking over the most powerful cards, the uncommons, the rares, the top commons, I noticed that very, very few of them specifically point you toward, I'm going to draft precisely red and green together. There are a lot of open-ended cards that fit in this archetype, and a lot of cards that push you toward I can draft whatever I want or I can splash or I can be multicolor green. Green, A lot of greens on commons are in that space. A lot of greens best on commons are in that space like uh, Spirit of the Elder Guard and Path of the World Tree. But also it's notable that with red-green specifically, Svela obviously is the 2-4 the creature that makes mana rocks uh, the mana rocks tap for any color, so Svela is a really good starting point to be a multicolor red green, like a multi like green X or red green X kind of deck, rather than something that you would really classify as oh I'm drafting red green. And so rather than talking about like oh well if you're red green it's because you started with like this card that told you to draft this, I want to talk about like how red-green kind of fits into the landscape and how it's different than other archetypes and different ways that you can go with red-green. Because the kind of strength and weakness to red-green is that it's an extremely flexible archetype because both colors are very strong and very deep and have a lot of different available game plans. And so It's not something like, you know, if you combine red and white, it's like, oh, okay, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be attacking because those are the primary strengths of both of these colors and uh, the aspects of these colors that most reinforce and support each other. Whereas with red-green, there are genuinely like a lot of different kind of core directions that you can go in. And... So I want to talk through like how you navigate that, what the options are, and uh, to what extent you want to just like 
focus on, oh, I'll just take a bunch of good cards versus, you know, is it still the case even in red green that you need to have like a game plan and a strategy and cards that are like fitting together in some way and like how precisely, like how precise does that way need to be? That's, that's kind of the overall challenge for red green is like you have good cards from one mana to seven mana. So how do you navigate that? What do you want your curve to be? How do you like interact with the fact that like, okay, well you have, you know, Tormentor's Helm and Fearless Pup as red commons. Uh, do these make sense with green or do these, these not make sense with green? If they do, which cards, which green cards do they want? So um, let's, let's just get into it. So you can draft like red green low curve i'm gonna pretend my cards in red are white are red and white but they're actually red and green where you prioritize your tormentors helms your run amucks and like to scary firewalker breakneck berserker stuff but then you pair it with green cards like a snakeskin veil and potentially mammoth growth and then aggressive creatures like Icehide Troll, if you can find the support for Snow, or Guardian Gladewalker, Jaspara Sentinels, another like playable cheap creature. I don't think this is the right way to go with the deck. I think that you give up too many of the strong cards in red and green, and your creatures don't have the keywords that are available in red white for example and like the the keywords on the white creatures are really important for taking advantage of the like power boosting that you can get from red or green like snakeskin veil and mammoth growth are better on white creatures than they are on red creatures and tormentor's helm and run amok are better on white creatures than they are on green creatures and these like low curve aggro decks really want to capitalize on the cheap white creatures with keywords. So while there are enough cards that kind of fit in this like super low curve aggro space in red green, both on a like theoretical level, I can say, oh, well, this is like worse than the other aggro decks and I can understand why it doesn't work. And I have actually tried drafting these cards together and the decks were among my worst red green decks and just generally very bad. So I would encourage not trying to like go for a rock bottom curve in red green aggro. If you're in a space where you're getting cards like Tormentor's Helm and Goldvein Pick and you're uh, wanting to pair them with green cards, like maybe you got the green rune, um, rune of might, uh, which is obviously really good with these like equipments. I do think that there's a place for you. I think that that place is a place that tries to take advantage of cards like Elderleaf Mentor and Dwarven Reinforcements and kind of leans into this like go wide element that is not like there aren't a lot of cards in the format as a whole that like really push toward going wide, but red green like red green has enough to do it because both Elderleaf Mentor, which is the 3-2 that uh, elf that makes a 1-1, one, one, and Dwarven Reinforcements, which is the 4-mana sorcery that makes two 2-1s two with Fertel. Both of those cards are not highly contested. You can generally table both of them. And 
they're a good way to use both of the common vehicles, uh, Funeral Longboat and Raider's Carve, uh, the common equipment in your colors, Tormentor's Helm and Goldfan Pick, and a few really high value uncommons, specifically Dwarven Hammer is the really big one, and then also, presumably, though I haven't actually done this myself, Doomscar Titan. And so you can do this thing where you're definitely aggressive, and you're using equipment really well, and you're doing it in this capacity where you're just like going wide and like maybe you have you know you probably have a mix of um equipment or vehicles and some combat tricks like you know run amok plays well here the thing that i've discussed about how an instant speed combat trick allows you to attack with all of your creatures you could even potentially if you end up in a very very creature heavy version of this deck use king harold's revenge sparingly but I do, like when you combine these cards, now you're like leveraging cards that you can get late in a way where you're taking advantage of their synergies. And now you're not just like doing a bad version of what other colors are doing. You're finding a way to like leverage late picks in a draft to maximum value, which is where, you know, doing a bad version of another deck is clearly a losing strategy. Leveraging late picks into something powerful is a winning strategy. Pres assuming that you're not just filling your deck with bad cards. You need, like, some reason that you can leverage these late picks. Again, I think Dwarven Hammer is the biggest card that points toward doing that. I think that, like, Dwarven Hammer is a very, very good card in red-green. It's a high pick, and I think the things that it most pushes you toward are these, like, go-wide payoffs and specifically Ravenous Lindworm, uh, because... Giving Ravenous Lindworm Trample is obviously great because it's a huge creature, and the life gain that it gives you makes it really hard to race the kind of like inevitable grind of the hammer giving all your creatures trample and like trading off and pushing damage. If you're in a space where you're specifically trying to take advantage of equipment, Go Wide is like the best way to do it. For the most part, I think that Tormentor's Helm, which is the main card that's going to push you in this direction, is honestly just better in the other red archetypes, specifically red-white and then somewhat red-black. In red-green, it's not great because Tormentor's Helm makes your creatures a little bit bigger, which is relatively low value on creatures that are already large. And the thing that red-green does best is have creatures that are already large. The reason, like the, the primary strategic thing that's going on with red green taking advantage of big creatures is that these big creatures let you leverage fight spells. So the card that I think, that, like the single card in the set that most points you toward, oh, I'm drafting red green exactly, is Arnie Slays the Troll. Obviously, you can play this in some kind of like splash deck, but it's at its best when you consistently have your mana early and when your creatures can profitably fight your opponent's creatures. And the best way to set that up is with basically cheap 4-4s. Four you can also do it with Icehide Troll, which is the 2-3 that pumps for snow mana, but that requires getting snow, which is, in my opinion, somewhat, going somewhat out of your way in red-green. Raider's Carve and Craven Hulk 
are really good ways to turn on Arnie Slays the Troll, as well as Finn the Fang, Fang Bearer at Uncommon. Obviously, you can do it with bigger creatures like Grizzled Outrider and Ravenous Lindworm, especially if you have some kind of acceleration to cast them ahead of time. But for the most part, you're really looking to like leverage, oh, like I have access to some like undercosted 4-4s that are going to let me turn on these fight spells that are going to give me like removal that I can leverage into aggression where like Arnie Slays the Troll is like removal spell plus plus where it also gives you makes your creature bigger and wins a race and struggle for Skemfar is that light it's a little bit better of a removal spell because it gives you the counter in time to fight so you can fight with you don't need your creature to be as large to win a fight but it's another thing where you kill their creature and now you have extra power because you're you know you your card was worth a card and a half, or well, a card and a fraction, because you killed a card and got a plus one, plus one counter. So you got a little carrot for your removal spell. So like one of the things that Red Green is doing is being uniquely positioned to leverage fight spells. And another way that you can leverage fight spells, admittedly, is with this equip is with equipment in general. It allows you to make a creature that's the biggest creature because it's augmented. And Tormentor's Helm is a way that you can do that. Though again, I prefer to enable my fight spells just with creatures that are big enough by themselves rather than with Tormentor's Helm, but obviously you want to be aware of all the options because there will be spots where you're supposed to go either way. The other really big direction that I want to talk about with um, red-green is the, the structure that I like most is basically what I think of as red-green no middle. What I mean is I want a lot of cheap stuff one and two drops and a lot of big stuff four to six drops and to really minimize my three mana well to my threes and also to some extent my fours and there are a f like this is a weird thing to do like in general you want your deck to have a curve and when we think about just like curves in limited decks like i think the most natural curve is kind of like a smooth bell curve where you have a lot of threes and the reason that I think that red-green is kind of an exception and the reason that I want this like little stuff plus big stuff minus middle is a few different cards point that way. First and most importantly, Goldvein Pick. We've probably all noticed by now that Goldvein Pick is just a really powerful card. The plus one plus one matters a lot in this format and treasure's great. And the because the three mana creatures are not very much bigger than the two mana creatures. It's really easy for equipping Goldvein pick to let your creature like connect or force like a chump block or unfavorable trade or something for your opponent. And so it's pretty easy to like use Goldvein pick as ramp provided you have cheap creatures. So you want creatures that cost one and two mana so that on three you can equip cold vein pick attack get a treasure and now there's a chance that on your next turn you can attack and get another treasure and now you've essentially ramped twice on turn four and you're ready to play a six drop and obviously if you ramp only once in there you're ready to play a five drop and red and green offer a lot of good five and six mana plays so uh if you replace like having threes and fours with having more ones and twos and more fives and sixes, you're better positioned to take advantage of gold vein pick. But it's not just gold vein pick. There are a lot of cards that 
functions somewhat similarly. My favorite, anyone who's been watching my stream recently knows, is Jasper Sentinel, which is like a one mana mana elf, except it doesn't do what most one mana mana elves do, where they ramp you to three on turn two, because it doesn't tap for mana until you've cast another creature. So where Llanowar Elf wants you to have, like to skip your two drop and to have a bunch of threes, Jaspara Sentinel wants you to make your two drop and then skip your three drop and have a bunch of fours. Or uh, if you're playing limited and can't reliably do exactly that, maybe some of the time you end up skipping play, playing a three and skipping your four or something like that. So I guess to talk more about Jaspera Sentinel, I think it's a card that had been underrated early in the format because it's obviously not as powerful as Llanowar Elf if you can't skip two and go straight to playing a three drop on turn two. So like if it has this weakness, is it really worth the card? And the answer is, well, in context, it's actually very strong because it's a one-two reach and it taps for a mana of any color and it ends up doing a bunch of extra things. It's a cheap creature to hold your golden end pick and because it's a base one-two, it actually like ends up being strong enough to like get involved in some fights if you can equip it. It can block flyers, especially uh, Battlefield Raptor, which it can like block and just hold off if neither one is pumped. It it, it can also chump a flyer in the late game, which can can matter. And but mostly it's just that this format has a lot of the like creatures, the cards that want you to have a creature in play. It can you know contribute to crewing a vehicle. It can hold equipment. It counts for like. Her like King Harold's Revenge, not that that's a particularly important consideration, but it also, uh, you know, it's an elf for your things that pump all your elves or whatever, and it also fixes your mana, which is the really, really big difference between like this and Llanowar Elf, um, especially because the format has a lot of five color fixing and this is part of it, and if you prioritize this and treasures and stuff, you can splash very easily, which is a, an important note about red-green, is that red-green is really well positioned to splash. You have all the good splashiness of green, plus you also have uh, Seize the Spoils, which is the tormenting voice for three mana that makes a treasure, which uh, is also just great for splashing from red. And then you also have a few other red cards that can make treasures. Jaspara Sentinel and Goldvein Pick are two commons that kind of serve overlapping roles where you get some redundancy on I'll get extra mana if I prioritize having a lot of other cheap creatures. So both of them want you to have just more one and two drops, which incidentally, both of them want you to have more Jaspara Sentinels. There's still a, like, but wait, there's more. Uh, you can also kind of skip the middle with Sculptor of Winter, Glittering Frost, especially in combination, and Seize the Spoils and then also some uncommons. So there are just like a lot of different ways. Um, there, there are just a bunch of ramp cards available. And so you can play this ramp strategy, but I guess what I'm saying is in this format in particular, your ramp strategy wants a little bit more bottom than ramp in most formats. And a lot of that is to take advantage of the ramp spells that need bottom, but also some of it is to not get run over by the aggro decks. And there's also just, you know, as a note, it kind of makes sense that like, oh, well, I want cheap stuff and big stuff because you want cheap cards in your opening hand. And then once you get to a late game, you want big stuff to top deck, which I mean, obviously like that 
is say like makes the case too strongly because clearly from observation we know that it's not the case that like oh actually that's how every magic deck wants to be built like three drops have a place and everything but a thing that you can do that i like doing oh another another card that kind of kind of supports this but kind of goes against it i don't know raider's carve is uh, i've mentioned it a couple of times i know that it's a card that a lot of drafters dismiss i think that it's severely underrated in the format in general and fantastic in red green i do think that it's not applicable to all decks or even all red green decks but it's really powerful like it's a 4-4 four, four for 3 that sometimes just basically uros when it attacks. Like, you draw a card and play an extra land if there's land on top. And, like, that doesn't always happen. But I've played games where it just happens twice in a row. It's not that uncommon. And you're so far ahead. And when it doesn't happen, you're often in a pretty good spot. You can think of what it's doing as when it attacks Scry where anytime there's a spell, you just leave it on top and you're going to draw a spell next turn. And anytime there's land, you scry it to the bottom, except actually you put it into play. And that fact that this, you know, your aggressive three drop that is way above curve and actually like doesn't get bricked by anything until like five or six mana out of most decks, if ever. Um, the fact that this like ramps you is obviously a reason to want more big stuff. Although... What I would suggest specifically, this, the thing that Carve most points toward that you might not think of, is uh, pushing toward having more lands with activated abilities. When Carve is attacking and just dumping spells onto the table, and then giving you the mana to sack those lands without, you know, just easily, just easily sack these lands and get extra spells, now it's doing a whole different thing. Um, but in general, I would urge you to play Raider's Carve, but also to pay attention to playing it in decks that have Raider's Carve friendly creatures. So it's bad with Axe Guard Cavalry because the primary thing that Raider's Carve or any vehicle is doing is essentially giving creatures that you play after it haste by letting them do something immediately and that they can immediately crew your carve. And if you're using your Axe Guard Cavalry to give your creatures haste, then you don't have anything to crew the Raider's Carve with, so it's not doing anything for you. So it's not a friend of Axe Guard Cavalry. Similarly, it's not a friend of Breakneck Berserker, because that already has haste and wants to be attacking rather than crewing. I mean, it will crew instead if you have a carve there, but you're not. Now this haste word didn't do anything for you. Not a fan of Ice Hydroll, because Ice Hydroll only has two power, and uh, most three drops in these colors have three power and would let you crew the card, whereas the Ice, Hold, the Ice Head Troll doesn't. Every four drop that you would play in these colors, except Spirit of the Alder Guard, if your deck is Snow Light, I guess, can crew Raider's Carve. And I think all of the three drops that you would consider playing outside of Ice Hide Troll can crew Raider's Carve. And so if your deck just... Oh, and Svella. This fella is not a friend of, of Raider's Carve. But um, if your deck is full of, uh, you know, cards like Sarlf's Packmate, Craven Hulk, Tuscary Firewalker, Elderleaf Mentor, Not Vold Recluse even, Horizon Seeker, if you have like a good number of those cards, Raider's Carve is really, really strong. Also, Waking the Trolls in particular, the Rare Saga, that rewards you for having more lands than your opponent. Turns out Raider's Carve is 
like one of the best ways to like get extra lands into play, maybe the best way to get extra lands into play in the format to power up your Waking the Trolls. So it's not that uncommon that, I mean, Waking the Trolls is like a bomb that puts you into red green. So if you start a draft with Waking the Trolls, you can very, very easily expect to find Raiders Carves. And so you might want to think from the very beginning, oh, I want my deck to use Raiders Carves. That means I want to prioritize three drops that can crew Raiders Carve. That means I want to deprioritize Ice Hide Troll. That means that I'm less likely to want to push myself into snow to take advantage of Ice Hide Troll. So that's the kind of stuff that you can like have in mind and be planning for from the very beginning of a draft. And that, uh, you know, it, it's worth thinking about stuff like that. There, I, I do think that there's a distinction. There are two different decks that are draftable between like this small small gap big or small ramp big and, oh, I'm just a ramp deck. And you can be just a ramp deck and um, you can basically what that looks like is potentially not prioritizing using gold vein pick you may or may not use just Spire Sentinel. It depends on like how many defensive two drops you happen to find. But maybe instead you're looking for like Frostbites to not fall behind. And then you're just like leaning on either the combo of Sculptor of Winter and Glittering Frost, presumably, or the much weaker combo of Vault Robber Seize the Spoils, which is the red equivalent where, oh, my Seize the Spoils can discard a creature so that my Vault Robber can turn it into a treasure, and then both of these give me treasures, and I've sort of ramped. Not not anywhere near as good as the uh, Sculptor of Winter Glittering Frost combo, but technically a thing that a deck can do. Yeah, but you can build just a more traditional ramp deck where you're, you know, on turn two, Maybe you're just foretelling something. There are a lot of good foretell cards in these colors. Obviously, Packmate, Demon Bolts, um, but also Dwarven Reinforcements can serve as kind of just like a speed bump in this kind of deck. And then playing, you know, the traditional ramp spells that I just talked about, and then a bunch of big stuff. Uh, mostly looking to take advantage of, like, Ravenous Lindworm and Cinderheart Giant, plus any rare and uncommon. Yeah, you can play just a normal curve of strong cards with just, like, the natural best commons in red and green there are plenty of synergies there it you have the power level we know these cards are good to my mind you know just Bar sentinel still goes in this deck i do think it's just like objectively a top five power level green common and then you know the the natural good red commons the removal spells axe guard cavalries firewalkers craven hulks all the way up to Cinderheart Giants, potentially, just like as a one-of, not necessarily ramping to it, just I happen to have top top end. You certainly want Lindworms, it's okay to play two or three of them. Um, Grizzled Outriders, Packmates, uh, and, you know, you t take advantage of, like, okay, these big creatures can fight, these cheap removal spells, like, fro like this deck uses Frostbite really well uh, to not fall behind. So you can just, like, oh... No weird synergies for me, just a curve and power level. And that, that's a fine, like, natural way to draft the deck. No no problems with that. But I wanted to highlight kind of the, like, all right, but how do I, like, you know, leverage more niche cards in case these colors aren't so open that I can just fill my deck with all the best cards or whatever. I think the next thing I want to do is just go over some individual card notes. So I talked about how, like, Tormentor's Helm is mostly for other color combinations, but in red-green, you can use it best in go-wide. Frostbite, 
in general, the way that I think about Frostbite is the higher your curve and the more expensive your creatures are, the better it is. If you are a bunch of cheap creatures, as I've discussed, you're probably just better off with a trick. But if you are trying to not get run over by your opponent's creatures, it's great. It trades up on mana by a little bit so that you don't fall behind. And compared to playing a blocker, if your opponent, like, if you play a blocker and your opponent has a removal spell, they push damage. If your opponent plays a creature and you just kill it, your opponent can't push damage the next turn. So the, the more you have a higher curve than your opponent, and the more you're in a defensive role, the stronger Frostbite is, just naturally. But I would also point out that Frostbite stock to me is going up, as I think in general people are learning to draft the aggro decks more, and I think that in my experience I am playing against the aggro decks more often and losing to the aggro decks more often. And so... Frostbite's just kind of like naturally better positioned in the format because people are drafting those decks more. Jaspara Sentinel has the exact opposite uh, incentives as Frostbite. The more cheap creatures you have, the more you want Sentinel. Whereas with Frostbite, the more expensive creatures you have, the more you want Sentinel. Or the more you want Frostbite. Sentinel's really good if you have a lot of one and two mana creatures, like six plus, and pretty bad if you don't have them. Um, if it's If you're not turning it on until later, you likely don't want it. Goldvein pick, I talked about how it promotes this no-middle strategy. I think that's the primary note with this card in red-green. It really wants you to push toward having cheap stuff and then also having big stuff, uh, especially Ravenous Lindworm and uh, Activated Ability Lands. Presumably that means not Bold Slumber Mound, but it could be any land that naturally taps for red and green that you're kind of like splashing the activation off of treasures. I've had a lot of good experiences with splashing Bredegard Stronghold, the uh, land that taps for green, that for white mana you can sacrifice it to give plus one, plus one counters and Vigilance and Lifelink to your creatures, splashing that in red-green where I have like a bunch of big creatures, but I might be like losing tiger decks, but if I activate that, they're just never beating me. I think, I think that's one of the like easy, powerful splashes in this archetype where, oh, there's a bunch of stuff that like lets me splash, well, what do I want to do with it? Well, it turns out it's pretty risky to like splash a spell because, you know, if you don't have a lot of sources, you can't risk having a dead card. But you can risk having a tapped land. Like, that's still a card if you can't do anything with it. And it just like waits for you to find your mana, and then it's like, oh, now I have this great effect. Masked Vandal, I want to talk about. Masked Vandal is a really strong card, and there's a specific incentive in red green to prioritize Masked Vandal as a way to turn on squash early. But I want to note that I've had some bad experiences with Mask Vandal in aggressive red-green decks. Specifically, Mask Vandal has played really well for me in green-white and in five-color because I think green-white does a much better job of taking advantage of just like, oh, there's a body in play. And five-color does a better job of, I'm playing really long games and this is going to be good eventually. If you are an aggressive leaning red-green deck, it really hurts you to have like a two-drop that's this bad and like doesn't contribute to what you're doing early. And you're not getting like you're not your games aren't as long, so you're not as likely to find a spot where it's giving you value as you are in the five-color decks. And you're not as good at using a random body because you don't have as much like pump my whole team stuff, you don't have as much equipment. So 
Um, I, I think you want to be really cautious with when you play Mask Vandal in red-green decks. Um, and it, I think in general you don't want to prioritize it super highly in red-green. Uh, Ice Side Troll at Sculptor of Winter. High upside, but I have not been... I, I generally don't uh, consider myself to be interested in fighting for snow if I'm like just red-green. Um, really hard to get enough snow lands to take advantage of these, especially since Ice Hide Troll requires a pretty big commitment to take advantage of. And I think that there are just other ways to do what both of these cards are offering that don't cost as many picks and as much to go right in the draft. And I think that you just like free yourself up a lot if you just write these cards off early and plan not to use them. But if you happen to be in a spot where you're taking some Snowlands for whatever reason, maybe they're there at a really low opportunity cost, every now and then you'll you know find yourself in a position to take advantage of the snow cards, and they're obviously good if you can use them. Another card that's kind of in a similar spot to Mask Vandal for me is Squash. Um, Squash is great. I've had good experiences with it, specifically when I have a lot of Craven Hulks, but I've also, you know, gone somewhat out of my way to play a lot of like Masked Vandals and Guardian Gladewalkers to turn on my Squashes, and I don't think it's worth it to like go out of your way to play like understated creatures in your deck that's all about your creature stats to turn on a single a particular removal spell in your color combination that has a bunch of removal spells already. So I, I think that like there are some red green decks where you just like like Craven Hook's really good in red green and if those are flowing great then you might want some squashes. But I do think that it's a little risky to like take a bunch of squashes or whatever, which I mean must be nice, but it that can happen. And I I've had a red green deck where like I found the reliance on squash that my draft happened to lean me toward being a significant liability. So that that's another comment where I'm not saying it's bad, but I'm saying you should exercise some caution in this archetype. Um, some uncommons that I wanted to note specifically, uh, Arnie Slays the Troll is noteworthy, just that it's the strongest, the, the card that most specifically points you to, oh, I'm just drafting red-green. Finn, the Fangbearer, this card's just great, but it's specifically just great in red-green. It fights really, really well, and it also just, like, turns on your, like, Jaspara Sentinel early, blocks early, stays relevant late, um, holds the fort late, plays really well in the, like, you know, little plus big deck. Plays really well in everything you can be doing in red-green. Rune of Might... In general, my thinking with runes is that how much I want them is a function of how much I want equipment, because they're so much stronger on equipment, and that would lead me to believe that I'm not that interested in runes in red-green, because I'm slightly less interested in equipment in red-green because of my creatures being big, and because I'm interested in Raider's Carve, instead, which I think competes with equipment in terms of these are both cards that require creatures to function. But Rune of Might... First of all, it's just busted. It's so much stronger than the other. I mean, there other runes are good. All the runes, like most of the runes, are great. But Rune of Might is really exceptional. And I mean, like, just an if it were just an aura, just give plus one plus one and trample and draw a card. That's not bad. That's that's quite good. And it's good to cast on just big creatures that don't have trample. 
So like Rune of Might plays well with just like, oh, I have like Ravenous Lone Worms and stuff in addition to playing super well with equipment. And it's also, you know, really awesome to just put on a fearless pop. Like 2-2 first strike that pumps to four and tramples is really hard to block and now it's hitting for two a turn instead of one. So you've like doubled the effectiveness of your pop and cantrip. Dwarven Hammer, I talked about how that likes go, go Wide and Lone Worm. Talked about Doomscar Titan as potentially a push toward playing Go Wide. Some noteworthy rares. Dragonkin Berserker, this is the 2-2 first strike that boasts for 5 mana to make a dragon, except all boast abilities cost 1 less for each changeling you can, er, sorry, for each dragon you control, but in practice that means changelings until you've activated it for the most part. And it's worth noting specifically, in red, uh, Dragonkin Berser Berserker is awesome in red-green because of changelings, and especially because of Guardian Gladewalker. The curve of turn two Dragonkin Berserker, turn three Guardian Gladewalker, put a counter on my Dragonkin Berserker attack. Now I'm attacking with a 3-3 first strike. So my opponent is basically guaranteed not to have a positive block on that. And now my next turn, I have a 3-3 first striker that can attack, which they probably still can't kill in combat. And because I control this 1-1 Dragon Changeling, I can boast on turn four. I don't need to make any other, like my, my whole curve is just, you know, two drop, two drop, dragon. And now I have a dragon and I probably still have my three, three first striker after combat. And like, that's just a two card combo that is extremely likely to just win a game if your opponent doesn't have a cheap removal spell. Speaking of two card combos that are extremely likely to win a game, uh, Magda, the um, dwarf lord that makes treasures when a dwarf is tapped is like, actually busted with Jaspara Sentinel. And Magda, Magda has like super impressed me in general. Earlier this week, I think, I had a draft where I opened Magda and Svela, and I was like, eh, I'll just take the rare, I don't get to play with it as much. I know Svela's busted, this might be the wrong pick. But then Magda, Magda was just insane every time I drew it. Like, way better than Svela. Like, just ran away with the game most of the time. It's worth paying attention to, uh, like, other dwarves. Magda's really good with, you know, dwarven reinforcements, breakneck berserker, especially axe guard cavalry, but, like, incredible as your Spara Sentinel. And you can also pay, uh, do similar things with just vehicles, um, just, like, using Funeral Longboat or Raider's Carve to let you tap any and all dwarves you have to make treasures every turn. And remember, you're also getting the green changelings working with Magda. Red-green is really good at using these treasures. Magda's great. Magda's particularly great in red-green, but it's also great everywhere. But do do draft around it. Arnie Brokenbrow, this is the 3-3 three, three haste that uh, boasts to get power sometimes. Um, this is maybe one of the other cards that most specifically says, hey, draft red-green, just because 3-3 three, three for 3 is, like, a good fighter, and haste, you know, plays well with, like, this kind of aggression, and also red-green is where you're most likely to get creatures that have high power for for uh, Arnie to copy. But that said, Arnie's not, like, a lot better here than any other aggressive deck. It's just a 3-3 three, three haster that sometimes gets more power and plays well with pump spells. And then Waking the Trolls. I mentioned it's a red-green bomb, and it wants you to ramp. It's, it's happy if you're just ramping with Goldvein pick. Like, you don't have to be putting additional lands into play. But if you can put additional lands into play, even better. Though I can't think of any cards in the format that put additional lands into play outside of Raider's Carve. So, um, Waking the Troll's good. Casting it early, good. Finding ways to use Raider's Carve with it, awesome. 
I talked, I mentioned before, splashing is easy. Do stay open to splashing in this archetype, but also remember that splashing is not good in aggro decks and be cautious about when you do it. I, I've had some, like, um, in the last couple days, I've had decks where I'm like red green, but also there are randomly agars tabling. And uh, I just like end up with like, you know, five or something like solid blue cards. And it's like, yeah, I can roughly make my mana work here. And I found that it was very bad to do so. When you're an aggressive deck, you need your mana to be much smoother than when you're like a five color control deck. And so if you're just like, yeah, I can get like six blue sources and seven red sources and eight green sources, that's like kind of functional. Just don't bother. Just just play a two color deck at that point. You know, maybe you can splash a card and like, you know, if you can get your mana up to like nine, eight, three or whatever and splash one really good card, that's fine. But make sure that your card is the kind of card that's actually worth splashing if you're going to do that. So, yeah, I mean... You can splash, but do it sparingly. Do it for, like, legitimate, like, the red-black dragon-type level bombs. And um, make sure that you're not, you know, hurting your mana too much when you do it. Yeah, that is... That that wraps up kind of my prepared lecture on red-green. So now I'm going to um, open it up to questions from chat. And... Uh, the first question from chat relates to uh, what I just said, which was, so like coma or something, or is blue blue too much? I am not sure if this question is specifically about a deck that I drafted that was pretty good, that was actually like red splash coma kind of. And uh, there's a follow-up chat, a follow-up comment from chat uh, it says blue blue is too much. Blue blue is not too much. Coma is really, really, really messed up. When your card straight up wins the game, if you cast it and, you know, 80 plus percent of, the, well, conservatively 80 plus percent of the time, it's worth going through some hoops to do it. And so, like, you know, it's not it's not effortless to splash coma, but uh, if your deck is good at making treasures, like you have some picks, uh, maybe you have Magda, um, you have some Sentinels, uh, you have some dual lands, like, I, I have... I have splashed Coma in red-green, and, you know, 10 out of 10 would try to do so again. Like, Coma is the sort of card where it's like, yes, this is so exceptional that this is worth doing. But it's, you know, it's not worth doing if you, you know, oh, I'll just put four islands in my deck and hope to find them. But it is worth doing if you're just like, oh, I have, like, three different cards where, like, if I draw this card it'll realistically sort out, sort my mana out all by itself. You know, some picks that I can reliably connect with multiple times or Magda or just like a lot of, you know, like if you have like five total like Sculptor of Winter Glittering Frosts where you're just like, oh, well, if I just assemble Sculptor of Winter, Winter plus Glittering Frost, I'm just going to like turn four coma people or whatever. So yeah, I mean like, it, it is the thing that you can do. It does require drafting pretty differently, but Coma's worth it. Um, but more realistic questions. All right, maybe not more realistic questions. The next question, next question is, if I'm red-white and I get past a Coma, pack two, pick two, do I go for Coma? This really happened. Uh, it depends on how white you are and how red you are and you know how many gold vein picks you have and stuff like that. If 
you're in a spot where you can, you know, use most of your cards in some kind of capacity that, like, you can get to a finished deck that will make sense and can cast Coma, then I would probably go for it. But if you're just like, well, do I have to just, like, dump through my first pack? Then I probably wouldn't. So the next question kind of gets to the real heart of what I've been talking about, which is I find that one of the problems I run into with red-green is that it gets cut by both the red-white aggro decks and the green snow decks, leaving me with really medium mid-range decks. Um, what cards should I look for uh, to see the platonic archetype is open? Arnie's Svela. So this is what I'm saying. Like the, the blessing and the curse with red-green is that you have a lot of cards in both colors that are just like, objectively flexibly good and people want them and if you're like if your colors are open and you're getting all of them then great you can just draft straight up and have just like oh well all the cards in my deck are good and they're flexible and i have a natural curve and i'm just trying to like beat people with my card quality because i'm drafting like the two strongest colors or two of the three strongest colors in the set but what actually ends up happening most of the time is oh I have like all these really good high pick splashable cards that other people want and you know I, I don't realistically expect to just fill my deck with like pack mates and demon bolts and uh you know other cards that are first picks and so if everyone at the table is sniping all your best cards what what is your deck supposed to look like and i would say kind of the like point that i've been getting at with this whole lecture is because the card like there are strong cards in so many different directions you can't know where you're going to end up because it's like if you're drafting black you can kind of think like oh well i'll probably just get most of the black cards at the table and now i can just figure out like given that i have all the black cards which ones of these do i want to play and what's this deck trying to do but with like if you're drafting red green i'm gonna get some red and green cards but i don't just get my pick of the litter i can't just be like oh well you know the best red green the best red cards and the best red green cards do this it's all right well the dregs that i'm left over with can be cobbled together into some vague synergy that i can maximize in this way so i'm not really looking like i'm not thinking about the deck in terms of like well what's this like what's the platonic ideal of red green because if i just like say all right, well, you know, the platonic ideal is, well, you just have, you know, the one each of the 10 best commons in the set, uh, and then you just play with them. Like, I don't think that that's what's going to happen. And so instead, it's, all right, well, what I've realized is I got a hammer early, and now I can take advantage of, like, these reinforcements and uh, dwarven reinforcements and elderleaf mentors that are tabling. Or, oh, you know, I think Raider's Carve is undervalued and I have some expensive stuff and now I can take like these, you know, to scary firewalkers and craven hulks that are like good but not super desirable for everyone and I can use them to crew my carves and cast big stuff and, you know, round that out with some frostbites or, you know, other removal spells or whatever and now I have a plan. But you need to be a little bit flexible about what that plan is when, um, you both want to be able to take advantage of any strong cards that aren't getting gobbled up by other players and you want to be you know nimble enough in the draft that you can take advantage that you can like function um while other people are kind of stepping on your toes 
Next question uh, for the um, no middle version of the deck that I was talking about. Am I looking for seven drop red giants or are you mostly looking for worms? Every version of the deck, Ravenous Lindworm is better than Cinderheart Giant. Ravenous Lindworm is a better card than Cinderheart Giant, full stop. Like the only exception, I mean, the exception to that is basically when you can't cast Ravenous Lindworm. Maybe like, because like basically the only thing that would make uh, Cinderheart Giant better is like specific giant synergies especially uh, the uncommon saga that makes your giants cheaper. And for the most part, like that kind of consideration is not going to come up in a spot where you're also considering Lindworm, for the most part. Um, but basically, like you want Lindworms, but you these days it's hard to just get as many Lindworms as you want. And so like giants are your like backup Lindworms. Um, and if you are like good enough at ramping and don't have um, other payoffs, then Cinderheart Giant is a fine payoff. Oh, this was a really good question that I sh uh, should discuss. Um, this question is, you're not high on Raven Wings. What, relative, what pulls uh, would make it more attractive in red-green? And um, this is definitely one that I've noticed. A lot of players really like Raven Wings in red-green for obvious reasons. Uh, you don't have a lot of flyers. You do have a lot of high-power creatures. You can be aggressive. Uh, it's very easy to steal games by putting Raven Wings on big creatures. Um, like it, it, it all makes sense. My experience with Raven Wings is that it's very clunky to use and very, very bad when you're being attacked, especially if you're not being attacked by flyers or if you're you have the ability to interact with flyers defensively in other ways and it really exposes you to tempo plays from your opponent. Um, to me, uh, Raven Wings is basically just like a card that creates ways that you can lose. And um, I, I mostly just think of it as like to be dismissive about it, like a crutch for weak players, where you're just like, all right, well, if nothing goes wrong, this is going to steal some games but if you're like trying to draft a deck to be less exploitable then raven wings isn't what you're looking for because it just like has kind of these uncontrollable weaknesses where it's going to have some bad matchups and it's going to like lead to unfavorable interactions now that i'm not saying to be dismissive is the right way to look at things ever um like you know, I could say the same thing about like Arachniform and say, well, I'm just never going to play Arachniform because it leads to getting two for one by a removal spell. But um, I'm aware that you know you can build like a uh, you know green white aggro deck that takes advantage of like putting plus two plus two it, uh, auras on creatures with keywords and like stealing games with them, and uh, like the risk reward can be there. Um, so like I, I do like understand that there is conceptually a place for Raven Wings, and that my like resistance to playing it is somewhat informed by kind of like potentially overreacting to fear, where it's like, well, you know, the worst like just not like not like not being able to handle the swings of a glass cannon combo deck. 
um, where you know the deck might win 60% of the time, but the 40% that you lose, your deck is just non-functional and you can't do anything about it. And so you say like, I just wanna have more control than this and so I'm not gonna play the deck, even if it has like the best win rate. Raven Wings can kind of push in that direction and that doesn't appeal to me as a player. Um, but I'm not confident that your win rate is going to go down if you play Raven Wings in some red green aggro decks. So the spots where you should play it, if you are inclined to kind of like take that risk and play the like high high risk high re reward card, obviously um, the more aggressive you are, the fewer ways to push damage you have, the more you're going to want it. So also the more boast you have because um, it's a way to like get boast creatures through multiple times. Also high power low toughness. So it's good with not bold recluse. It's good with Tuskuri Firewalker. It's um, good with you know craven hulk i guess just because it's big it's also good with frostbite um because it uh because raven wings is bad against people who are attacking you and then frostbite can you know buy you some of the time that you're investing and um keep you alive to let you steal the game with your flyer um so i don't know that that's that's my raven wings spiel uh next question can you say a little bit more about waking the trolls and how highly you're taking it i've shied away from it when i've seen uh good single color uncommons or top three commons should i be taking it higher i understand shying away from it because it is a six drop that doesn't really immediately impact the board um it's like very and i mean also sometimes it's bad sometimes you know you draw it late and your opponent has drawn more lands than you or whatever but um it like wins games very decisively when it's good and it's good a lot of the time um i i believe that it's basically just like a bomb and should be treated as such and that you should you know take it over commons and uh just like prioritize it as a ramp payoff and that it's just like better than other ramp payoffs um that's that, that that's basically just my answer it, it's really strong next question do i think in search for greatness is playable in red green uh long story short no um i i believe that the stats on that card on 17 lands are quite bad i have not ever seen it do anything on either side of the table not that i've seen it i've never like seen it in a pack and been remotely tempted to take it i haven't played it but if it were good i assume i would have played against it and my opponent would have impressed me with it at some point um i took it with a trickster gods heist once it didn't really do much um uh yeah i i, I would not look to play in search for greatness that's gonna wrap us up for this week Thank you everyone who tuned in live uh, for tuning in and asking questions. And uh, thank you to all of my listeners on YouTube and podcast. If everyone is unaware of any other ways that they're uh, consuming this, aside from what they're currently uh, listening to, this is recorded live on uh, twitch.tv uh, slash Samuel H. Black and is available later on youtube or podcast or any podcast app that you like so if you are 
listening to this on one of those platforms and might prefer listening to it on a different one. Those are the other ways you can check it out. And that will uh, wrap us up for this week. And I will be back next week with another archetype.